Welcome back to Tim Hatch Live. The Supreme Court defends the First Amendment. Kids' face masks may contain diseases. Gee, I wonder how that could happen. And trans Olympians are coming to a television set near you this summer. Oh, and in the life of David, it's time that we ask this question. Which king are you following and unfollowing? Welcome to the Deep End on Tim Hatch Live. I am beloved. The man they call David, the son of a Jesse, the John that slay it, the heart full of king, three stones in a sling. I'm dancing my clothes off to the sound of the beat. Ah, welcome to the deep end with Tim Hatch. Welcome to the deep end, everybody, on Tim Hatch Live, and it is so good to be with you one more time. Every time I get to do the show, I am thankful to present this content to you, and I'm thankful for you, and I'm especially thankful for those of you who like and subscribe on youtube.com slash Tim Hatch Live. It's a new channel. Gone is the deep end TV, and here to stay is Tim Hatch Live. So check that out over at youtube.com slash Tim Hatch Live. We want you to make sure that you uh, like the video, subscribe to the channel, you know, hit that little notification bell. That way you'll always be aware of when we go live. And if you listen to this content on your podcast app, could you do me a solid and could you leave a review on your favorite podcast uh, outlet app device, whatever. Follow us across all of our channels now at Tim Hatch Life. That's why we changed the channel, you know, the name so that you could just say, oh, it's just Tim Hatch Life. So where's the deep end? Oh, Tim Hatch Life. Uh, wherever you are, wherever you go, that's it. The Tim Hatch Live website, the Tim Hatch Live social media channels, all in one place. And it's so much easier. Oh, and by the way, of course, can't forget, you can pick up your swag at timhatchlive.com as well. So changes are coming to this channel as they always do. I, I get bored in life. I don't know if you're like that. I get bored in life. I like to change things up. We've got a new segment starting in two days. I am so excited. Uh, this Thursday, 12 noon, our first of what I believe will be a bi-weekly um, show that we'll put on this channel called 10 Questions with Tim. And I would love you to send your questions. Some of you have already done it. Keep sending them in. I had the email wrong last week. It's actually ask at timhatchlive.com. Or you can just put them in the comments below. But a lot of people like to do the whole anonymous thing. And so if you want to be anonymous, just ask for being anonymous and send them to ask at timhatchlive.com. If you want to be anonymous, I get it. And I don't want to push your name out there, especially with some sensitive questions. I want to make it as easy as possible for you to get the answers that you're looking for. And then there's a new segment on top of that segment coming to the channel. Actually, it's an old segment, and it's just finding a new home. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, I'd like to introduce you to Deep Dive Bible Study with Tim. This is coming soon to the channel. So here's actually what's happening. The Deep End is getting divorced. <laughs> deep End is getting divorced. And so the uh, section on the news is actually going to stay right here at 7.30 on Tuesdays where you know it and where you love it. But that section on the life of David uh, is going to change to another day, Wednesday nights. So you've got back-to-back -back nights now of my face in your screen. I think that's cause for celebration, if you ask me. But uh, so we're going to take the Bible section of the deep end, and we're going to call that uh, Deep Dive Bible Study with Tim. And then we're going to take the news, and we're going to leave it right where it is. And it won't just be news. It'll be 
commentary on the news, as I always like to do. But the news is getting longer and longer. I'm sure you've noticed that. And uh, the Bible study is also getting longer and longer. And so instead of taking up an hour and a half of your time on one night, we'll split it up. Uh, The content will continue to be pumped out on the channel, and you'll have wonderful opportunities to connect with us on the YouTube channel uh, all week, including on Thursday. And who knows if we won't do a Friday show at some point. But we're just building the channel and building the content so that you can always come back and get fresh content every day. It's a privilege again, like I say, to come here and to be with you guys. And I'm excited for tonight's episode. I hope you are too. Let me know in the comments below where you're watching from. Um, Here's the question of the day, actually. Uh, For those of you watching on where, you're supposed to be watching where? You're supposed to be watching at youtube.com slash Tim Hatch Live. So if you're watching there, down below in the comments, let me know if you watch the whole episode. Just say whole episode or just say news and then some after that, or just say, I'm only here for the Bible. I'd love you to do that for me. Let me know in the comments below. Whole episode person, half episode, which half do you like? Um, Don't let me know what you don't like because I'm thoroughly convinced that there's nothing to not like. You know what I'm talking about? Uh, So with that in mind, uh, let's get into Deep End News. Deep End News. News and views that don't make us news. Oh, we've got a new bumper for Deep End News and a new title. It's news and views that don't make you snooze. And even though it's the old title up there, (laughs) that's where it is. Okay, first, let's get into some really good news today. Really, really, really good. That's really good news. Yes, the news segment of the Deep End News channel, which is really good news. And here's the really good news. Are you ready for it? This is exciting. I'm so excited. I'm so excited. I can't hardly speak. The Supreme Court has held up the First Amendment. I think it's always a good thing when we see uh, the government go to work as it should, according to the Constitution of the United States. Agree? So the Supreme Court, in a nine to nothing ruling, says the city of Philadelphia can't force Catholic foster agency to work with LGBT couples. This is a win, not just for the First Amendment. Okay, Congress shall make no law regarding the free exercise of religion. It's a win for all people. It's a win even for LGBT people because there's there's something wrong with the country as it is right now. We are being played against each other by the news media. We are being played against each other. The enemies are your neighbors. You know, the enemies of your life are, your, are the neighbors. You know, we've got to stop this. We've got to stop. And when the Supreme Court upholds the Constitution regarding um, the freedom of religion, all people should celebrate. All people should celebrate because it's one of the things that separates America from every other nation on the planet now or has ever been. (laughs) The marriage of church and state is ugly, nasty, usually ends in a divorce or illegitimate children or all kinds of weird, funky marriage designs by the kings and the queens of that country. It's, it's It's a disaster. Anyway, our country is wonderful because it does separate church and state. And the Supreme Court said nine to nothing. Now, nine to nothing is not a questionable decision. This is a this is a rock solid decision, right? This is you can't argue with the what the Supreme Court has ruled here. And I think this calls for a visit over to the shelf of civility. Yes. Yeah, give peace a chance. Like, so the city of Philadelphia, here's what happened. They had limited Catholic social services from working with the city because the Catholic social services says we're only going to place kids, foster kids, in a family where the marriage is between a man and a woman. 
And so the city of Philadelphia said, you can't do that. That's discrimination. So the city of Philadelphia discriminated against the church. The church fought back. God bless the Catholics because they got the money to fight back. And they fought all the way back up to the Supreme Court. The Supreme Court ruled in favor of the church. Now, now Chief Justice Roberts actually wrote the, uh, the opinion for the court. And he writes, it's plain that the city's actions have burdened CSS's religious exercise by putting it to the choice of curtailing its mission or approving relationships inconsistent with its beliefs. Uh, the Catholic agency, he wrote, has long, has, has long been a point of light in the city's foster care system. CSS seeks only an accommodation uh, that will allow it to continue serving children of Philadelphia in a manner consistent with their religious beliefs. It does not seek to impose those beliefs on anyone else. That's a very important point. The refusal of Philadelphia to contract with CSS for the provision of foster care services unless it agrees to certify same-sex couples as foster parents violates the First Amendment. Please don't miss the big news. The big news is not that the church won. The big news is that the First Amendment won, and God bless the First Amendment and the writers of the First Amendment. Be, be mindful of how important that amendment is, because that's what's keeping uh, us as a free nation, okay? When, when the government starts stepping in and telling religious people what to believe, or when religious people start stepping in and telling everybody else to believe by government fiat, that's a problem. Anyway, good news, right? But you wouldn't think it was good news from the news media. And this is how they play us against each other. So this is from the Insider uh, website. And here's the title of their article. Supreme Court unanimously rules in favor of Catholic foster agency in case that pitted religious freedom against LGBTQ rights. I hate titles of articles like this. I hate how the news is reported about these things in the secular news media. Uh, for instance, look at this one from Bloomberg Opinion. I know it's an opinion piece, but it's still, this is Noah Feldman. He writes, Supreme Court's 9-0 ruling on gay foster parents divides justices. That's not true, actually. And then the under the, the, the tagline, uh, a unanimous ruling on a case affecting LGBT rights doesn't show the court is united on religious liberty exceptions. Actually, it shows the opposite. And he goes on and on and on about how this is actually... Um, a blow to religious freedom. There's actually a, a, a boon to LGBT rights. And then he goes on and on about how it's, you know, uh, bad for religion. And basically, he's, what, is, what is he doing? He's providing secular commentary on a very blatantly clear uh, pro-religious freedom case uh, decision. And, and this stuff is constant. And, and you got to look at the language. You got to re realize that words matter. Okay. It pits religious freedom against LGBT rights. Back to the Insider article. I hate that language because it's not actually what happened. It's not actually what happened. Absolutely not one right was taken away from LGBTQ people in this decision. Absolutely not one right. What LGBTQ person wants to work with an agency that doesn't want to validate their marriage. It doesn't make any sense to me. Like, you know, you know what I'm saying? And, and so what it does is it upholds the, the law of the land. It upholds the First Amendment. The ruling stipulated that the city of Philadelphia discriminated, not the church. The church has been holding the line on man-woman marriage, the Catholic church, for 2,000 years. Okay, this, is, this is not a blow to LGBTQ rights. It is upholding the rights of sincere, devout religious people. The ruling does not stop a gay couple from working with other organizations in the city to foster children that they want to. It stops the city from discriminating against faithful Catholics. So I just have to do this on the deep end news because you have to learn how to 
to, to see the news rightly and see how the news plays us against each other. At some point, and this is my commentary here, at some point, LGBTQ people over here and Christian devout people over here have got to learn to live and let live. We've got to learn to live and let live. We also have to learn that we have different opinions and we can still be neighbors and we can still live side by side. And my opinion on homosexuality does not make me your enemy. It just makes me a Bible-believing Christian. Oh, and your opinion as an LGBTQ plus person or a person in favor of that uh, does not make you an anti-religious person. It just makes you different, okay? And we've got to learn this. We've got to be civil at some point. I'm a Bible-believing Christian minister. I have the God-given right and the constitutional right to believe and practice my faith the way that my faith teaches, as it has taught for 2,000 years. And if you want to go all the way back to Abraham for 3,500 years. Oh, and gays and lesbians have the constitutional right to believe in certain and live in certain ways that I don't agree with. And we need to learn to live side by side in peace. We have to learn to, uh, to agree to disagree and not let the news pit us against each other. Shut for shame. So what really annoys me, though, is that as LGBTQ people are constantly pitted against Christians in this country, there's no outrage. There's no outrage when things like this happen. Check this out. This is from theprotocol.com. It's out of the article. Apple, China. Apple, China is censoring 27 LGBTQ plus apps, report shows. And then the article goes on to stipulate that the only... Uh, country with a higher level of censorship than China on LGBTQ stuff, propaganda, apps, you know, product is Saudi Arabia. So China is second only to Saudi Arabia in its censorship of LGBTQ+. Meanwhile, the NBA has no problem partnering with China. The MLB has no problem partnering with China. Uh, Apple has no problem partnering with China. Do you know why? Because it proves very clearly. Here's the real hard facts, okay? It's about money. It's about money. It's always been about money. It's not about respect for LGBTQ people from Apple. No, they just want money. So if Chinese, if the Chinese government says you can't put the LGBT plus uh, apps on our website uh, because we don't agree with it, Apple says, yes, sir. Yes, dictator. Sure. Absolutely. Whatever it takes to earn money from your people. This is what I also call hypocrisy. Okay. This is why I don't buy into the whole pride movement. This is why I don't buy into the whole agenda. Because it's not really about human rights for these corporate bigwigs, especially. It's about selling product. And if it will sell this way in America, but not in China, they will gladly change their views. They are serving the almighty dollar. And we Christians have got to wake up and realize that this is really what it's all about. And it's not about human rights or dignity. Um, more good news. How about that? Really, really, really good. That's really good news. It's good. So here's some really good news. There was a new report from Barner Research on the satisfaction of married couples. And would you believe, and this, by the way, happens like every other year. They do this little survey of satisfaction marriage. Who are the most satisfied people in marriage? Would you believe that once again, and as I've reported this many times in my church and now here on the Deep End, Tim Hatch Live channel, practicing Christians are the most satisfied in their marriages than any other group. Uh, I want to put a graphic up here. It's going to blow you away. This is the uh, this is the chart. 
So uh, very frustrated, dark green, somewhat frustrated, light green, neutral, very light green, somewhat satisfied, yellow, and then very satisfied orange. And the groups, they're listed, you as adults, all Christians, practicing Christians, Christians not practicing, non-Christians. And the one with 73%, I love that, 73% of um, very satisfied marriages come from practicing Christians. Now, what Oh, by the way, zero practicing Christians were very frustrated. <laughs> and if you add the somewhat satisfied together with the very satisfied, you get 93%. And then neutral, add another three, 96% of Christian practice, practicing Christian marriages are not frustrated with their marriages. What's the good news here? The good news is that there's something wonderful that adds to your life when you are married and in the church together as a family. Now I get it. It's hard to get your church to family. To, uh, it's hard to get your church to family. It's hard to get your family to church together because what do you do? You get in the car and you start fighting and you start arguing and you start screaming at each other. And then you show up to church and you're a bunch of hypocrites because you're like, hi, we love you. Yes. God bless you. Everything's wonderful. I get it. Yeah. We all do that. Everybody does that. I do that for heaven's sakes, but it's worth the fight to get into the house of faith. I want to say that again. It's worth the fight to get into the house of faith. Your family will be blessed. Your life will be blessed. Your marriage will be happier. Can I tell you some practical reasons as to why your marriage will be happier? Because when you get into church, you are reminded every week that God is in charge, not you. And if there's one thing that will help your marriage, it will help both of you out is when you both realize that you're, neither of you is actually in charge. God is ultimately in charge. It also helps you when you go to church as a couple, when you both go to church and you realize from the word of God that you both have an assignment and your assignments are different and that's okay that God made them male and female, that God made male for female and female for male, that they're, they're designed to help each other, that, that, that the man is the head of the household. Yes, but the man also as a leader must love his wife as Christ loved the church sacrificially. And you learn about your assignments, sacrifice for the men and respect for the women. That's it, This helps your marriage because this is the way that your creator designed you to operate. And then let me just say one more practical thing. When you go to church and you're involved, and I'm talking about you serve in the church and you get involved practicing Christian, you are offered opportunities to invest your life in other people's lives. And nothing helps your spirit and emotions better than giving yourself on behalf of others, whether that be financial assistance, physical assistance, or just being a friend. You are made to give your life away. Jesus will talk about this ad nauseum. You are not made to hold on to your life. You are made to give it away, to lose it, to sacrifice, to give, to spend yourself on behalf of others. This is, how all, this is also how God designed you because you're made in the image of God and God is a giver and God spends himself on behalf of us. And when you go to a church and you get involved, that's the key point, get involved. You have opportunity to see the joy of giving yourself away in action. When you're involved in a church, you meet people who have the same struggles as you. That's number four. Like you really, you, you learn, oh, I'm not the only one that struggles with this problem. And that helps you because then you're not isolated in your struggles and in your sin and all the things that go on in your life. And, and look, I, 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 I gotta be honest. I don't get how people who say they are Christians can maintain a happy and satisfied life without the company of fellow believers in person. I don't get it. I, when I'm not in church, and sometimes it's just between 
Monday and Saturday, I go cray cray. I go nuts. I get ornery. I get nasty. I get angry. I get all kinds of anxiety in my life. I get nervous. And then when I come to church, I'm reminded that God is on the throne, that other people matter to God, that I have a role in the kingdom, that God has a plan and a purpose for me. This is why the scripture will say in Psalm 122 verse 1, I was glad when they said to me, let us go to the house of the Lord. I was glad when they, why was I glad? Because I needed it because I needed it. Because without the Lord, without the church, I would, I, I'm telling you my own story, without the church, I would be a hot mess. And maybe, let me just throw this hypothetical out there. Maybe the reason why anxiety is on the rise, depression is on the rise, uh, suicide is on the rise, is because we have abdicated this glorious opportunity for gladness to come into the house of the Lord. And we have willfully, as a culture, all the stats prove this. The church attendance is way down. Church attendance post-COVID is like down to 48% in this country. Maybe we've given up what God wants for us, which is best, and we've, we've gone after all these other things that we think are best, and the results are disastrous. I love what I do. I love being a leader of the church because I know, I know the glorious blessing of being in the church. Okay, so that's good news, right? A lot of good news there. Now it's time to get into some bad news. And the bad news have to do has to do with my old friend Fauci. And I put this up constantly. I'm sorry, but just one more time. Masks are not theater. Masks are not theater. So, so here's some news uh, out of Florida. I want to put this up on the screen. A group of parents sent their kids' face masks to a lab for analysis. Here's what they found. A group of parents in Florida sent their kids' face masks to a lab for analysis, a scientific lab. What's in the masks after my kids wear it? Oh, by the way, they were also washed, and then they were sent to the lab. And uh, the article reads, uh, it only stands to reason uh, that one of those health ramifications would be the fact one of the health ramifications of all this mask nonsense would be the fact that millions of people, particularly children, have been forced to wear and carry around pieces of cloth that they've continually breathed through for hours on end. What lurking pathogens might be found on these disgusting contraptions being incessantly handled, stuck in pockets, and mindlessly tossed on books, tables, and desks? Well, one group of Florida parents sent a batch of masks worn by the children to a lab to find out. And yeah, you'll probably need to make sure you aren't eating dinner anytime soon before you digest these results. And so they came back from the lab, and the lab detected the following 11 alarmingly dangerous pathogens on the masks. Here's the list. Are you ready for this? Streptococcus pneumoniae. Which kind of sounds familiar. Advertising fasciitis caused by an invasive streptococcus. Yeah, uh, microbacterium tuberculosis, Neisseria meningitis. I mean, this goes on and on. 11 dangerous pathogens. I want to wash your hands. Uh, it goes on for a whole list there of all these horrible things that could come upon your child's face. And you got to remember, like the article makes this point very valid. Half of the masks were contaminated with one or more strains of pneumonia causing bacteria. One third were contaminated with one or more strains of meningitis causing bacteria. One third were contaminated with dangerous antibiotic resistant bacterial pathogens. In addition, less dangerous pathogens were identified, including pathogens that cause fever, ulcers, acne, yeast infection, strep throat, periodontal disease, and a disease I never even knew of, Rocky Mountain Spotted Fever, <laughs> and more. Wear a mask. Yeah, wear a mask. We've been told this again and again and again, and we, the science, this, this is why I keep bringing this up, because this whole 
COVID thing has proven, in my opinion, clear as day that we actually don't follow the science. We just follow feeling, we follow political designs, we follow whoever speaks the loudest and on and on it goes. And and it just, I mean, come on, a kid's gonna take his mask. I don't want my kid touching anything of his. A child, do you know that a child naturally smells nasty? Like I walk into my boys' bedrooms, I can tell that they've been in there. You wanna trust the mask that they're putting who knows where as as this safety net from covid why well we're talking about kids and how they handle things this is ridiculous we've got to wake up to the reality and maybe 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 we've got to tell them to wash their hands yeah this is this is where we are as a country anyway i just bring that up because once again the science is very unscientific and don't follow the science don't follow the science because science has become politicized. Science has become agenda driven and uh, it's getting ridiculous. Another way in which we reject science, uh, that brings me to the Olympics. And this article from Fox News, Laurel Hubbard is the first transgender athlete to compete in the Olympics. Laurel Hubbard is a uh, weightlifter, super heavyweight weightlifter. And this is a former man, biological man, who now calls himself Laurel. And he lifted, he, she lifted 628 pounds in two lifts to qualify for the women's super heavyweight division. She, he, she is from the Netherlands, if I'm not mistaken. And uh, the report pointed out that in 2015, the International Olympic Committee changed its rules to allow transgender athletes to compete as long as their testosterone level is below a certain level and maintained for a year. The determining criteria, check this out, a maximum reading of 10 nanomoles per liter of testosterone is at least five times more than that of a biological woman. So again, science, right? The International Olympic Committee says that, okay, fine, we're gonna let boys play women's sports, especially one as intense as weightlifting. And all he has to do is maintain a level of 10 nanomoles, which I don't even know what a nanomole is, but whatever that level is, it's five times what is in a biological woman. So a biological woman has te- two nanomoles of testosterone and a biological man pretending to be a woman has only to get down to 10. And by the way, this guy is one gold left, right, and center. <laughs> it's just like, this is fair. This is, this is science at work. Uh, the article continues. The Guardian, citing IOC guidelines, reported that athletes who transition from male to female are allowed to compete in events without surgically removing their testes. Oh, my word. Science. The paper reported that some recent studies show power gain during male puberty can last forever. So this this guy, girl, uh, is part of the New Zealand. Sorry, I said Netherlands. It's from the New Zealand team. And uh, the, the New Zealand committee couldn't be happier. Executive Karen Smith said, It's clear Harvard has met all the criteria to compete in Tokyo. We acknowledge that gender identity in sport is a highly sensitive and complex issue regarding a balance between human rights and fairness on the field of play. This is why, ladies and gentlemen, let me just say something. Let's just, I know it's going to sound very, very disturbing, very inappropriate to so many of you, okay? But that's a dude. That's a dude. Call me a bigot, but... That's not your mother. It's a man, baby! Yeah, that's a man. And it's just kind of interesting. And here's the point that I want to make. Dear woke Christians, dear woke Christians, this is what they mean when they talk about social justice. This is my problem with wokeism because wokeism is not really about fairness. Wokeism is about an agenda. It's about an agenda that actually undermines fairness. It's about an agenda that actually undermines equality. 
especially for women. We talked about last week about how transgenderism has become this serious problem for young pubescent girls. And, and this week, we're going to see that in this year's Olympics, we're going to break all kinds of records in female sports as men compete as females. This is not progress, okay? You have to admit, she is rather mannish. She is rather mannish. The elimination of females as men compete, men with testicles compete in female sports is not progress. The domination of males in female sports is not science. The internationally sanctioned unfairness in sport against women is not justice. It is anti-woman. And it is just kind of hilarious to watch the news in this world continually show itself to be crazy. The world's getting crazy. It's getting crazier, isn't it? Now, let me resolve. Here's the thing about the craziness in the world. Let us never fall into desperation in the face of evil. Mm -mm, mm -mm, mm -mm. God has been using evil for his good purposes for a long, long time. And I believe with all my heart, in spite of it getting so crazy, he's going to continue to use that crazy, that crazy evil for his good, for his people. And that brings me to the life of David. The life of David. We are cooking right through the book of 2 Samuel. We are in 2 Samuel chapter 17. And the title of this talk is, Are You Unfollowing or Following the Right King? So it's a social media generation, right? We're all about unfollowing certain people and following other people and making sure that we're following the right people. My, my, my question is, are you unfollowing or following the right king? Now, last week, we talked about the cultural revolution led by Absalom, the very handsome, the very young, and what we're going to see in this week, the very stupid Absalom. And I related it to our modern world because Absalom starts to divide the country by tribes. You know, what tribe are you from? Oh, and if you, uh, you know, if only you had someone that would, you know, fight for your case, I would see that you get justice. And he uses those two terms, justice and what tribe are you from? Tribe, justice, division, and then clamoring for people's justice, elevating people's distinctions and uh, magnifying their complaints. And it's kind of what we're seeing right now, a bit of a cultural revolution where, you know, we're seeing uh, justice portrayed as men playing women's sports, or we're seeing justice portrayed as uh, letting uh, 190 cases of violence and looting against um, shops in New York City and in the Bronx, just wiping them out, dismissing the cases as just happened this past week. That's not justice, ladies and gentlemen. That's not justice. Those people own those businesses and now they have to pay for the damage that was done to them during the rioting of last summer. And the New York uh, courts just threw out the cases. Case dismissed. No big deal. That's not justice. So as much as people want to talk about justice, and especially amongst, amongst the young, the young and beautiful people, the Absalom-esque people, there's a literal failure of justice happening. So in 2 Samuel chapter 17, there's effectively two kingdoms at work. There's David's kingdom. And a lot of people are questioning David's kingdom because after all, he robbed the man of his wife and he killed the guy. And then there's Absalom's kingdom. And Absalom's kingdom is largely responding to the perceived failures of David's kingdom. See, the Absalom's like the young guy who sees what the old man's doing, sees the failures of the old man, and thinks I could do it better. I'm young. I'm beautiful. People seem to like my hair. 
And so he starts to undermine David and undermine the established kingdom of the day. And that's exactly what's happening today in our country. For instance, there's a town in Evanston, Illinois. They canceled their 4th of July parade, but they held a pride parade. <laughs> I kid you not. They held a pride parade in honor of Pride Month, but they're canceling their July 4th parade. Guess why? For COVID-19 reasons. This is, this is what's happening right now in our country. Macy Gray, the Grammy Award-winning singer, thinks it's time to remove the American flag altogether. It's a sign of white oppression. A transgender Olympian tweeted a while back that he, she wanted to win the gold so that he, she could burn the American flag in front of the world. And most notably, President Biden is making sure that the pride flag becomes, flies right beside the American flag at all U.S. embassies around the world. It's pride, my friend. It's the original sin. It's the sin of Lucifer in heaven. It's pride. It's we know better. We've been on this earth 20 years and we know better. It's all from the young. And it all has been pushed on you. And now hear me out clearly. America is not God's kingdom. America is not Israel. And I don't believe in this God and country theology. I don't. It's just, America is a secular nation. It has, risen to, it, is, it has risen to prominence and one day it will fall. But what we see in the physical reality of this country right now in our cultural moment what we see physically is only a reflection of what is re a reality spiritually there is a wicked battle going on in the unseen realms between two kingdoms the one kingdom is led by king jesus and this kingdom is full of flawed people just like david the church has sins the church hurts people the church will exercise some manner of worldliness until christ comes but i will say this the church is still a wonderful movement the other kingdom, however, is far worse. It's a kingdom centered on outward appearance, Absalom's kingdom. It's centered on youthful exuberance and glory seeking. It's centered on power grabbing. It's, it's centered on notice me, love me, follow me, like me. David's God's chosen king. Absalom is the self-appointed king. And today we live in that same spiritual context. And we will always need to answer this question. Are we following the right king? Are we following or unfollowing the right king? Because here's what Absalom actually does. He actually kind of repeats the exact mantra of Saul's kingdom. Remember Saul's kingdom? We're going to see so many parallels between Saul's kingdom of selfishness and self-love and Absalom's kingdom of self selfishness and self-love. These two men are kind of the same and they both bookend David's kingdom and David's caught right in the middle. And it just kind of teaches me one lesson right off the top. The kingdom of self is hard to kill. The kingdom of self is hard uh, is hard to kill. That's just a fact. Okay, let's get into verse uh, 15 as we close out verse, uh, chapter 16. Now Absalom and all the people, the men of Israel, came to Jerusalem and Ahithophel with him. And when Hushai the archite, David's friend, came to Absalom, Hushai said to Absalom, long with the king, long with the king. And Absalom said to Hushai, is this your loyalty to your friend? Why did you not go with your friend? He's talking about his father, David. And Hushai said to Absalom, no, for whom the Lord and his people and all the men of Israel have chosen, his I will be, and with him I will remain. And again, whom should I serve? Shouldn't it be his son? As I have served your father, so I serve you. Now, this text introduces us to some players that we met last week, if we remember. I'm going to remember who they are. Okay, so we've got Absalom, of course, the rebellious son. We've got Ahithophel, who was the advisor to David, and now he becomes the advisor. He just jumps ship, and he he supports Absalom's rebellion. And I will. I just want to make a note about that: that Ahithophel was the seer, the cultural seer of the day. Like everybody listened to Ahithophel, and uh, they considered his words the word of God. 
And then there's Hushai, who is David's friend, who, if you remember, met David as he was running from Absalom, leaving the city. And he wants to go with David. And David says, no, you're not. I can't handle you. We're all exhausted. It's too much. You got to go back. And he becomes David's undercover agent to spy out the reign or the plans and the strategy of Absalom. Now, David models for us last week, we talked about this, something that is very important. Like when we are in trouble, when we are under pressure, and I hope you get this, we need to do two things. David does two things. He prays, he seeks God, and he prays passionately as he's leaving the city and he's getting chased out of town by his son because I'm sure he's heartbroken and he's also panicked and he's also stressed and full of anxiety. So he prays. God frustrate the plans of Ahithophel, the words of Ahithophel. And then he meets Hushai. We talked about this last week. And he sends Hushai in there to frustrate the plans of Ahithophel. So the point is, is that he prays as if everything depends on God. And he works as if everything depends on himself. And there's a beautiful psalm that actually comes from this moment we're going to get to in a moment. Uh, psalm 40. But anyway, let's continue. Verse 20. Then Absalom said to Ahithophel, give your counsel. What shall we do? Ahithophel said to Absalom, go into your father's concubines. Now, remember that Ahithophel is the guy who everybody thinks is speaking the word of God. Go into your father's concubines, whom he has left to keep the house. And all Israel will hear that you have made yourself a stench to your father and the hands of all who are with you will be strengthened. So they pitched a tent for Absalom on the roof and Absalom went into his father's concubines in the sight of all Israel. Now in those days, and here it is, here's the qualifier about Ahithophel. Now in those days, the counsel of Ahithophel gave was as if one had consulted the word of God. So all the counsel of Ahithophel was esteemed by both David and by Absalom. Now, Here's something else that it reveres, uh, this passage reveals. As revered as Ahithophel was, he's actually quite perverse, is he not? He's revered, but he's perversed. He tells Absalom to go sleep with his father's concubines. I'm so weird. It's disgusting. Why does Ahithophel so willingly and viciously turn on David, by the way? Little, little backstory. Ahithophel is actually Bathsheba's grandfather. Hmm. Yeah, so he's probably a little bit still bent out of shape that, that David did what he did to Bathsheba and to Uriah. And so maybe he's considering that this is just punishment for David's sins concerning his granddaughter. And so I'm going to just make sure that this guy suffers for hurting my granddaughter and my, grand, my grandson-in-law. <laughs> Whatever the case, we see that this man has, has let evil grip his heart and he's bent on destruction. Going on, now we turn the page to chapter 17. Moreover, verse 1, Ahithophel said to Absalom, let me choose 12,000 men and I will arise and pursue David tonight. I will come upon him while he's weary and discouraged and throw him into a panic and all the people who are with him will flee. I will strike down only the king and I will bring all the people back to you as a bride comes home to her husband. You seek the life of only one man and all the people will be at peace. And the advice seemed right in the eyes of Absalom and all the elders of Israel. So Absalom thinks he's right and the elders of Israel think he's right because everybody thinks that Ahithophel is speaking the very words of God. This is a very respected leader in Israel in the day. And his plan is simple. Blitz, blitzkrieg David and kill him as he's weak and fleeing the city. Kill the king and all the sheep will follow you. And the elders like, yeah, that sounds good. That sounds right. Look what Absalom does. Verse five. Then Absalom said, call Hushai the archite also. And let us hear what he has to say. Uh, then Hushai came to Absalom. Absalom said to him, thus has Ahithophel spoken. Shall we do as he says? Now remember, Hushai is the plant. Hushai is the, the double agent who's working for David. And Absalom literally tells Hushai, Ahithophel's plan. And then it says, now, if you don't like it, speak. Then Hushai said to Absalom, the time, this time, the counsel that Ahithophel has given is not good. Now, we have a clearer picture now of Absalom's character from these verses. Remember, Absalom was the one who would measure his hair every year, every time he cut it. This guy is in love with himself. He was handsome. He was striking from head to toe. Beautiful. And he's prideful. 
He's arrogant. He's vengeful. He killed his brother because he raped his sister. But here's one more thing that we see that Absalom models for us. He's young and he's stupid. He's young and he's stupid. And I want to say something that's going to be, I'm going to lose some of my audience. I'm sorry I have to say this, but most young people are stupid. Most young people are stupid. When I was young, I was stupid. And um, I can prove this to you right now, no matter how old you are. Think of your 10-year younger self and ask yourself, was that 10-year younger self of you stupid? The answer is probably yes. I know that my 34-year-old self was stupid compared to me right now. Because with age comes wisdom. This is, this is all over the Bible. With age comes wisdom. And this is why when I see a cultural revolution led by young people, I immediately am suspect of it. Because young people tend to be stupid. Even the secularist, atheist, anti-Christian Bill Maher is starting to see it. The other day he did this monologue on ageism. It was fantastic. I encourage you to watch it. But he was defending actually. He was defending President Biden's age against a lot of young people who think he's too old to be president. We shouldn't trust him because he's not with the young people. He said the following. You know the reason why advertisers in this country love the 18 to 34 demographic? Because it's the most gullible. Yeah, he's right. And, and, and he goes on and on and on in a fantastic monologue about how the young people today, they want socialism. They want, well, one third of them want communism to give communism a try. And he's like, you know what? We've tried this. The problem is that you've just been alive for 20 years and you think you know everything. It's called youthful pride. And here's the thing about pride that is actually origin that actually originates in lucifer remember lucifer was in heaven and he was the most beautiful angel he was the archangel of worship he's the most beautiful angel and pride got a hold of him because of his beauty and i say that because when you're young you're beautiful but you're also stupid just like absalom he's beautiful but he's also stupid so when we look at our culture i i i i I implore you parents be informed. I implore you parents to be aware of this because your kids that you think you should follow and listen to about serious issues of justice and righteousness and what is good and what is moral and what is acceptable, including in policy and public uh, policy positions from politicians, you've got to lead, not follow your young people. It's just true. It's just a fact. Anyway, we got to go on. Verse eight, Hushai said, you know that your father and his men are mighty men. And they are enraged like a bear robbed of her cubs in the field. Besides, your father is an expert in war. He will not spend the night with the people. Behold, even now he has hidden himself in one of the pits or in some other place. And as soon as some of the people fall on the first, at, at the first attack, whoever hears it will say, there has been a slaughter among the people who follow Absalom. Then even the valiant man, whose heart is like that of a lion, will utterly melt with fear. For all Israel knows that your father is a mighty man and that those who are with him are valiant men. Okay, there's some, some key moments here that Hushai is painting. There are some key pictures that Hushai is painting for Absalom. He, he paints uh, David as a, a mighty warrior, an expert in war. You know, he says his men are like men who have had their, their bears, their cubs robbed from them, like a bear who has had their cubs robbed from them. And, and he's painting this picture because that speaks to young people. Pictures and, and images speak to young people. And uh, he kind of frightens him. He's trying to buy time for David to get out of the city and avoid Absalom's wrath. Verse 11, here's what he says. But my counsel is that all Israel be gathered to you from Dan to Beersheba. From, from Dan to Beersheba. That's from the top of Israel in the north to the south of Israel in Beersheba. To, and, and get everybody on your side as the sand by the sea for multitude. And that you go into battle in person. So we shall come upon him in some place where he is to be found. And we shall light upon him as the dew falls on the ground. And of him and all the men with him will not one be left. If he withdraws into a city, then all Israel will bring ropes to that city, and we shall drag it into the valley until not even a pebble is to be found there. This is Hushai's plan, and his plan is actually intended to cause Absalom to fail. But notice the plan. 
it is as clear as day on the screen here. He plays completely on Absalom's pride, doesn't he? Let all Israel be gathered to you. You go out in battle in, uh, to battle in person. We will come upon him with you, right? And then, and then everybody's going to see you're going to be the triumphant commander who, who defeated the greatest warrior the, 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 the scriptures have ever seen. Hushai knows exactly what he's doing here. It's actually quite brilliant because he is totally playing on Absalom's pride. Verse 14, and Absalom and all the men of Israel said, the counsel of Hushai the archite is better than that of the counsel of Ahithophel. For the Lord has ordained to defeat the good counsel of Ahithophel. For the Lord had ordained, now this is not actually the quote. Look at this. The quote ends with uh, what the elders, the men of Israel say there. But then it says this, for the Lord and this is so important. For the Lord had ordained to defeat the good counsel of Ahithophel so that the Lord might bring harm upon Absalom. What is this saying? God's in charge. God is moving this thing together to bring defeat upon the man who undermines God's king. Verse 15. Then Hushai said to Zadok and Abiathar the priest, Thus and so did Ahithophel counsel Absalom and the elders of Israel, and thus and so have I counseled. Now therefore go, send quickly and tell David. So these are two spies that are going to go and report to David what the plan is. Do not stay tonight at the fords of the wilderness, but by all means pass over, lest the king and all the people who are with him be swallowed up. Now Jonathan and Ahimaaz were waiting at Engrogel. A female servant was to go to and tell them, and they were to go and tell King David, for they are not to be seen entering the city. Okay, just want to go through this real quickly. But a young man, verse 18, saw them and told Absalom. Both of them went away quickly and came to the house of a man at Bahurim who had a well in his courtyard and they went down to it. And the woman took and spread a covering over the well's mouth and scattered the grain on it and nothing was known of it. When Absalom's servants came to the woman at the house, they said, where are Himahaz and Jonathan? And the woman said to them, they have gone over to the brook of water. And when they had sought and could not find them, they returned to Jerusalem. Okay, so there's this, there's this, you know, transmission of the message from Hushai in the king in the court of Absalom to David in the wilderness and these two spies who have to transmit the the um the news and they're chased down by Absalom's men and this woman hides them in a well covers the well with grain and says I haven't seen them they went over somewhere else there's a lot of parallels by the way I don't know if you noticed this we picked it up from last week too between Joshua entering the city of Jericho and David being helped by God uh, to reclaim the throne here. Just as the spies went into Jericho and a woman named Rahab lied and, and hid them from, from harm, so too a woman hides and hides the spies for David to keep them from harm so that they can report to David what's going on in, in, the, in the kingdom of Absalom. There's a lot of parallels. Why is that? Because here's why. God is always going to establish his kingdom. God is always going to establish his kingdom and his kingdom is always going to be established and we do not fear what might happen in the world around us because we know that God is ultimately in charge of the kingdoms of this world. It's very important. It's a very important practical lesson uh, in the text. Uh, but we got to go on because I'm going to spend all day here if I don't continue. Verse 23, and Ahithophel saw that the council was not followed. Check this out. When Ahithophel saw that his counsel was not followed, he saddled his donkey and went off home to his own city. He set his house in order and hanged himself. And he died and was buried in the tomb of his father. Ahithophel kills himself. There's a lot of parallels, by the way, between Ahithophel here and Judas, is there not? Ahithophel betrays David to his enemies. And then he sees that his plan uh, was not actually followed through, and he kills himself. 
he was a betrayer. And David talks about his relationship with Ahithophel actually in Psalm 41. And I bring you to Psalm 41 because you have to remember that every time David was in trouble, he turned to the Lord. Every time, whether it was his own trouble with Bathsheba and, and, and Uriah, or it was the trouble that he had from Saul, and now even in his trouble from his own son, Absalom, David had a, a remarkable ability to turn to the Lord no matter what the trouble was or where the trouble was coming from. And once again, he turns to the Lord here in Psalm 41. I want to put it up on the screen, full screen for you. It says, blessed is the one who considers the poor. In the day of trouble, the Lord delivers him. The Lord protects him and keeps him alive. He is called blessed in the land. You do not give up on, uh, you do not give him up to the will of his enemies. The Lord sustains him on a sickbed. In illness, you restore him to full health. Now remember, he says, blessed is the one who considers the poor. Well, what poor person did David bring justice to? Mephibosheth. Remember, Mephibosheth was lame, living in squalor and loaded a bar. David showed him kindness. He considered the poor. He was a righteous king. By the way, justice in the Bible always begins with helping the poor. <laughs> it always begins, uh, and I'm talking about horizontal justice, horizontal justice, man-to-man -man justice, always begins with helping the poor, not helping yourself. Absalom, help myself. I want to be important. I want to be glorious. I want to be celebrated. David, no, we're going to celebrate people who can't celebrate themselves. We're going to lift up the broken, the people who have nothing. That's why you serve uh, in the church. That's why you serve in things like uh, Compassion International, to support children overseas who are in poverty. That's why you support a local rescue missions to the poor and disenfranchised in the country because that's the heart of the Lord when it comes to justice. Remember, that is primarily his focus. Going on in verse 4 of Psalm 41, As for me, I said, Lord, be gracious to me. Heal me for I have sinned against you. Like he's, he's acknowledging I, I'm the one that's at fault here. I'm getting what I deserve. My enemies save me in, in, uh, in malice. When will he die and his name perish? And when one comes to see me, he utters empty words while his heart gathers iniquity. When he goes out, he tells, abroad, tells it abroad. All who hate me whisper about, whisper together about me. They imagine the worst for me. And he goes on in verse eight. They say a deadly thing is poured out on him. He will not rise again from where he lives. From, sorry, from where he lies. Look at verse nine of Psalm 41. Even my close friend in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted his heel against me. By the way, Jesus will quote those exact words when he's talking about Judas betraying him. But you, O Lord, be gracious to me and raise me up that I may repay them. By this I will know that you delight in me. My enemy will not shout and triumph over me, but you have upheld me because of my integrity and set me in your presence forever. See, when, Paul, when, G, when uh, David talks about his integrity here, by the way, he's talking about the integrity that was imparted to him through the words of Nathan the prophet when he sinned against Bathsheba and Uriah. He repented immediately and Nathan's words were, the Lord forgives you, there's going to be consequences. Justice between God and man is accomplished through the word of God to man, of course, in the new covenant through Jesus Christ, who becomes sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God. But David models this hundreds of years before the cross because what Nathan said to David, you're forgiven, but there's going to be consequences, is a model for us. We have integrity. What I'm trying to say is we have integrity to pray to God because the justice has been served at the cross for our sins. Therefore, we have confidence to enter into the holy place and ask God to fight our battles. I hope I explained that right. I was kind of like meandering all over the place, but I hope it helps you. Anyway, uh, yes, let's get back to a verse that mentions something very important before we get to the point that I want to make. 2 Samuel 17, 14. And Absalom and all the people of Israel said the council of Hushai the Archite is better than the council of Ahithophel for the Lord. Look at this. The Lord had ordained to defeat the good council of Ahithophel so that the Lord might bring harm upon Absalom. 
the Lord frustrated the advice of Ahithophel and elevated the advice of Hushai, David's plan, in the ears of Absalom. Do you know why? Because the Lord is absolutely in charge. It's incredible how much David actually experiences what Christ will fully experience uh, in his ministry. David is exiled and hated by the elders of his earlier days. That is what Jesus is. He is hated by the elders, the Pharisees and the Sadducees. David is followed by all the people who are bitter in spirit and broken. So is Jesus. Uh, and then da David is betrayed by his close friend Ahithophel. And so is Jesus betrayed by uh, Judas. And this moment where Ahithophel, who betrays David, and then is thwarted by the Lord in his advice to Absalom, presents to us a theme of the Bible from cover to cover that you've got to embrace, you've got to internalize in your spirit right now. Here's that theme. God regularly uses the enemy's evil plans as instruments of good for his people. This theme is on the first page of the Bible. When sin comes in, God had already had a plan that the offspring of the woman would crush the serpent's head. The offspring ultimately is Jesus. The serpent is the devil. Jesus crushes the devil's head at the cross. In Genesis 50, when Joseph and his brothers are reunited and the brothers come to him and say, hey, dad, before he died, told us that you should forgive us for selling into slavery and hating you, betraying you. What does Joseph say in Genesis chapter 50, verse 19? He says, uh, do not fear. I'm not in the place of God. As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. And this theme continues, by the way, throughout Holy Scripture, the theme continues again and again and again. God uses the evil of Pharaoh to bless and deliver his people in Exodus. God uses the sins of Samson to bring deliverance to the nation from the Philistines in the days of the, of judges, of the judges. God uses the pride of Saul to discipline and prepare David for the throne. And here God even uses Ahithophel, an evil betrayer, to bring David back to the city. And in the New Testament, the cross, perhaps the epitome of evil as the Son of God, is brutally murdered by Romans and the leaders of the Jewish people. That evil brought about by the instigation of Judas's betrayal, another evil, is the means by which God brings everlasting life to you and to me. I implore you to understand this in regards to the evil that you are facing in your life right now. I implore you to understand this. God is sovereign over the enemy's opposition in your life. Right now, your life might be facing some serious betrayal. Maybe you're facing some friends that have just been exhausting to you. Maybe you're facing some hardship in your business and your family. Maybe you're looking at life and saying, why is God allowing this? And I'm going to tell you something, that God is going to allow evil in your life for one purpose only, to bring about his ultimate good in your life. God is sovereign. He's sovereign over the enemy's opposition. This is the theme from the Bible's from the central message of the Bible, the gospel, the cross, the hideous, bloody cross of death becomes the glorious cross of our freedom and salvation. I was having a conversation with our executive pastor at our church this morning. We were talking about how all these people are coming out of nowhere to come to our church. How, how, how 
when COVID happened and wokeism started to happen and, you know, Black Lives Matter started to happen and all that kind of stuff started to divide the church and we saw so many people leave. But at the same time, we saw so many people leave. We actually saw our giving levels go up. People gave more than ever before. And maybe it just wasn't the givers that left. Maybe that was what it was. The givers just didn't leave. The, 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 the takers left. And because we weren't the church that they wanted, they left. And, and, and ever since all of that, that hardship, all that divisive stuff, all that COVID and everything, our church has seen God bless it. Our church has actually expanded. We've got record numbers of baptisms this year, record numbers of new members going through our program to get involved in the church. It's just an incredible time to be part of our church. And I love it because here's the truth. God is sovereign over the enemy's opposition, especially when it comes to the church. The church that preaches the gospel has nothing to worry about and nothing to fear because God will always make possible the church to preach his gospel because that's the message that God wants to present to the world. And if you are committed, if you are committed as a family to preach the gospel to the world through your local church, God is going to bless your life and be sovereign over the opposition in your life. Now, let me make one qualifier statement about all this. You still have to do something. <laughs> he is sovereign over the enemy's opposition, but you still have to do something. That's what David does. David does something. He prays. He cries out to God. He sends Hushai back into the kingdom, into the king's palace to frustrate the, the, the advice of Ahithophel. And then he's going to, and we're going to get to this, he organizes his army. He prepares to fight. You have to pray like everything depends on God and you have to work like everything depends on you. And when you're going through troubles and trials and tribulations, remember that God is going to use the enemy's opposition for your ultimate good, but you have got to do something. You've got to pray and you've got to work to see God's ultimate purpose come to pass. Okay, let's continue in the passage. Verse 24, Then David came to Mahanaim, and Absalom crossed the Jordan with all the men of Israel. Now Absalom was set Amasa over the army instead of Joab. Amasa was the son of a man named Ather. He's basically Joab's cousin. Um, verse 27, When David came to Mahanaim, Shobi the son of Nahash from Rabbah, the Ammonites, and Macher the son of Amil from Lodabar, Remember, Lodabar is where he found Mephibosheth and Barzillai, the Gileadite from Rogalim, brought beds, raisins, uh, basins, sorry, and earthen vessels, wheat, barley, flour, parched grain, beans, lentils, honey, curds, sheep, cheese from the herd for David and the people with him to eat. For they said, the people are hungry and weary and thirsty in this wilderness. Now listen, these people did not have to come and help David out, but they did. And you have to understand, you have to believe that it was in this very moment. You have to believe it was in this very moment when this food suddenly arrives, when the guy from Lodabar, where Mephibosheth was, that he helped, that he brought out of poverty. And now this guy is bringing David his needs. Okay, it comes back to him. You have to believe that it was at this moment that David penned the words in Psalm 23, verse 5, that you prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. I just, I just, I just think that that's exactly right here. That's where he wrote it. God is feeding me while I'm surrounded by my enemies. And God will feed you when you are surrounded by your enemies. Turning the page to verse 18, uh, chapter 18, 2 Samuel, verse 1. Then David mustered the men who were with him and set them over the commanders of thousands and commanders of hundreds. And David sent out the army, one-third under the command of Joab, one-third under the command of Abishai, the son of Uriah, that's Job's brother, uh, and one-third under the command of Ittai, the Gittite. And the king said to the men, I myself will go out with you. Now, David organizes the army and he's ready to go, but look what happens here. But the men said, you shall not go out. Verse three, for if we flee, they will not care about us. If half of us die, they will not care about us. But you are worth 10,000 of us. Therefore, it is better that you send help from the city. In other words, don't come with us, David. You would possibly die. And you have to love this because David and Absalom model two different responses to the advice that they receive. Absalom is given advice to make the war all about him and he likes it and he follows it. 
And David, who is about to go into the battle with his men to lead them into battle, is told, don't do that. And he's like, okay, I won't. Because look what it says. The king said to them, whatever seems best to you, do. I am not going to make this king. I am not going to make this war about myself. I am not going to take the glory. I'm not going to, I don't need to be the center of attention. And I think it was that spirit that, that literally saved David's life here in 2 Samuel 18 from his son's rebellion. Do whatever seems best to you. I will, whatever seems best to you, I would do, David says. So the king stood by the sea side of the gate while all the army marched out by hundreds of thousands. You have to think that's very hard for David to do. Watch the army go out to fight and he sits there and waits. And the king ordered Joab and Abishai and Ittai, deal gently for my sake with the young man Absalom. And all the people heard when the king gave orders to all the commanders about Absalom. And that's going to actually go pretty poorly pretty soon. Uh, verse six. So the army went out into the field against Israel and the battle was fought in the forest of Ephraim. Um, yeah, Ephraim. Ephraim. Am I saying that right? Ephraim. Ephraim. Sorry. Ephraim. <laughs> sorry. And the men of Israel were defeated there by the servants of David, and the loss there was great on that day, 20,000 men. And the battle spread over the face of all the country, and the forest devoured more people that day than the sword. David's army wins handily. Now look what happens to Absalom. Verse 9. And Absalom happened to meet the servants of David. Absalom was riding on his mule, and the mule went under, a thick, under the thick branches of a great oak, and his head caught fast in the oak. And he was suspended between heaven and earth while the mule that was under him went on. And a certain man, man saw it and told Joab, behold, I saw Absalom hanging on an, in an oak. And this is the end of Absalom. And here's what happens. Joab said to the man who told him, what, you saw him? You didn't kill him? I would have been glad to give you 10 pieces of silver and a belt. But the man said to Joab, even if I, even if I felt my, in my hand the weight of a thousand pieces of silver, I would never reach out my hand against the king's son. For in, the hearing, the, for in our hearing, the king commanded you and Abishai and Atai, uh, for my for the sake of for my sake protect the young man Absalom. On the other hand, if I had dealt treacherously against his life and there's nothing hidden from the king, then you yourself would have stood aloof. Job said, verse 14, I will not waste time like this with you. And he took three javelins in his hand and thrust them into his heart of Absalom while he was still alive in the oak. And ten young men, Job's armor bearers, surrounded Absalom and struck and killed him. Absalom dies. Then Job blew the trumpet, verse 16, and the troops came back from pursuing Israel, for Job restrained them. And they took Absalom and threw him into a great pit in the forest and raised over him a very great heap of stones and all Israel fled, every one to his home. This is the end of Absalom. The end of Absalom is the hair of his head catches onto a tree branch and stifles his movement as the mule underneath him keeps walking and he literally hangs there helpless and then gets stabbed by Joab. Now, we'll get into Joab's treachery next time, but I want to focus here on the end of Absalom. The beautiful, handsome, hair-weighing Absalom. Remember we talked about this, the original Instagram influencer Absalom? The thing that he prided himself on most became his undoing. Verse 18, now Absalom in his lifetime had taken and set up for himself the pillar that is in the king's valley. For he said, I have no son to keep my name in remembrance. He called the pillar after his own name and it is called Absalom's monument to this day. Ah, this is the epithet of Absalom. He did what Saul did, by the way. Remember, Saul set up a monument to himself and then died. Absalom sets up a monument to himself and then dies. Uh, Richard David Phillips, commentator, writes this. Uh, Absalom was born an heir to the glory of God's covenant with David, but seeking a glory of his own, he died in shame. 
It's interesting that Absalom's Instagram influencer lifestyle has been replayed by countless young people over the past several years. Following their passionate and yet temporary search for glory in their beauty, these young people end up being destroyed. I share these stories with you not because I want to but I think it's important that we see the, the very similar experiences of our day. All you got to do is Google search Instagram influencer death and scores of reports are generated. People like Ethan Peters, who went by the name Ethan is Supreme, <laughs> died at age 17 in September 6, 2020 from a drug overdose. He had 500,000 Instagram followers. Instagram influencer Josie Maria died at 24 after a public battle with anorexia. She had 138,000 followers. Died December 20th, 2020. January 2021, Christine Angelica DeCara, an influencer who has over 182,000 followers on Instagram, was found dead in a hotel, raped and murdered. Influencer Adriana Murrieta Trevino, 29, vanished after arriving in Guadalajara International Airport on November 1st and was found dead in a canal. She had 60,000 Instagram followers. December 1st, 2020, Instagram influencer Alexis Sharkey was found dead near a Houston interstate. She had 85,000 followers. December 17th, 2020, influencer Jocelyn Kano died from a botched cosmetic surgery. She had... 12.7 million followers. Lee McMillan, dead by suicide, April 1st, 2021. Traveled the world, shared on Instagram, 90,000 followers, killed herself. Russian influencer, 28-year-old Christina, uh, I don't know how to pronounce his name, Juravella, Juraleva, a former teacher, was found dead 11 days after she went missing, according to the Daily Mail. According to news reports, she had some kind of illicit drug injected into her system and brought about her death. She had 340,000 followers. This just two weeks ago, on June 9th, the body of influencer, someone known as Nekasea, was found by police in the courtyard of an apartment building where she lived with her boyfriend, according to Yahoo News. A letter asking her family for forgiveness was also found. She killed herself. She had 100,000 Instagram followers. It took me 15 minutes to find those news articles because this is, an, this is a epidemic amongst our young. They're following beauty. They're following fame. They're searching for a kingdom of their own. Why is suicide rising so high amongst the young? Because they're getting caught up in their own glory and fame. They're young and they're stupid because those things don't matter. And this is why I have a serious problem with the cultural moment in which we are in, which seems to be led by young and stupid people. Disrespect for the aged, disrespect for the established values of our country and our culture, a sense of entitlement, a sense of thinking they know what justice really is when they haven't even been alive long enough to really understand humanity, human rights, 
and what is really truly valuable in the world. Jesus said, Matthew 16, 26, for what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? What will a man give in return for his soul? You know, you got to live a few years to find out that Jesus is exactly right about this. You got to live a few decades because I think a, a writer for the Village Voice in New York once, once, once famously said, I think that if God wants to play a real cruel joke on people, he gives them whatever they want. You can get fame, you can get followers, you can get the glories of this world, this temporary moment, and lose who you are. And you learn this by living. And then when you lose it, and when you don't, you know, when, when you find out it's not all it's cracked up to be, guess who's there to save? Jesus. Because the same Jesus who said you don't get anything from gaining the whole world also said this, I'll give my life to save yours. The Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. So my question is, what king are you following or unfollowing? For some of you, it's time to unfollow the wrong people. It's time to stop chasing what the world chases, Christians. It's time to start chasing God. It's time for some of you to re reawaken the passion that you had for God. That love at first, like the Ephesians are told in Revelation 2, get back to what your first love was. Remember how passionate you were. You gotta start unfollowing some people that are influencing you wrongly. Start following some people who will lead you in the path of everlasting life. And I think that you need to do this because your soul is at stake. There are two kingdoms. There's the kingdom of Jesus. There's the kingdom of young and stupid Absalom. Follow the true king. Your future self will thank you for this. That's the episode. I trust that you've enjoyed it. Do me a favor, if you would, would you support The Deep End at thedeependtv.tv slash give or it might be timhedgelive.com slash give. I don't know where it is now. Somehow, someway, support The Deep End. I'm sorry. And uh, make sure, if you would, follow me, actually, at all the social media sites, Tim Hatch Live, and, uh, because I want to connect with you about these things and I want to share things that matter. That's what we try to do on the social media sites not for my glory, but for your edification and your help. And so with that in mind, we come to the end of this episode of The Deep End. It's been my privilege. It's been my honor to be with you. I hope and trust that you have a wonderful day, and I will see you next time on The Deep End. Thank you for watching this episode of The Deep End on Tim Hatch Live. And let's be honest, you really enjoyed it. So click that subscribe button, click that like button, and also the notification bell so that you can always be aware of when we go live next. The Deep End is made possible by viewers like you, so consider giving today. I look forward to seeing you next time on The Deep End.
Thanks for joining us for this week's episode of The Deep End. The Deep End is brought to you by listeners and viewers just like you. Consider giving today. Hey, if you don't have a home church, come and check us out at one of our campuses. Visit waterschurch.org and you can find a time and location that fits your schedule. Tune in next week for The Deep End with Tim Hatch.